um, in the sense that the, the, we're, we're in the final act. Uh, we're in chapter 10, and we have turned the corner. The book of Mark is basically about two things. One is, who is Jesus? And two is, how do we respond to him? Uh, who is he, and how do we respond to him? Uh, in chapter 8, Peter answered question number one. He said, you are the Christ. And then uh, from chapter 8 on, uh, Jesus has been explaining and demonstrating and showing us how we are to follow him. So we're going to jump right into chapter 10 today. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this short, I promise, uh, so you can take your moms out for, and your wives and your daughters and your sisters out for, uh, uh, for lunch today. But I wanted to just briefly talk about this very, very important story in Mark chapter 10. Uh, this is the story that's no- commonly known as the story of blind Bartimaeus. Have you ever heard of blind Bartimaeus? Um, this is uh, about much more than a man who receives his physical sight, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but I wanted to tell you, there's a, uh, there was a woman in 2000 down in Mississippi, a Mississippi woman named Sharon K. Thornton. Uh, Thornton. And at age 51, this woman uh, developed a very rare, serious skin condition that destroyed the cells on the surface of her eye causing the cornea of her eye to become scarred uh, and, you know, relatively quickly leading her to be completely and totally blind. Um, This is a woman at the age of 51. She had two grandchildren, uh, and uh, suddenly these grandkids she wasn't able to see anymore. And after she went blind, her her children started having more kids, and uh, over the course of the next few years she ended up having um, uh, seven more grandchildren. None of them, she you know, never got to see any of them. She never got to see the smiles on their faces, never got to see their tears, never got to, you know, when the, when the little kids go, Grandma, watch this, watch this. She didn't get to see any of those, um, and she was completely blind. Um, at that time in 2000, because of the type of uh, disease that she had, the medical community did not hold out any hope that Mrs. Thornton would ever uh, be able to see her grandkids again. And so for nine years, she lived in this blanket of darkness, uh, completely and totally blind. Uh, But in 2009, uh, uh, she was presented with a very unique opportunity. The doctors and the scientists at the University of Miami had developed, begun developing, they had learned it from some scientists and physicians in Italy, but they had begun to develop this procedure, and the procedure has a Fascinating name. It just trips off the tongue. Osteoodontocarotoprosthesis. Doesn't that just have a nice ring to it? Um, osteo, and the, the reason I bring up the name is because as I describe this, um, as I describe this procedure, it's actually pretty fascinating. Osteo means bone. Like we get the word osteoporosis from the Greek bone, uh, porous bones, osteo. Osteo means bone. Odonto means tooth. That's where we get the term orthodontist, Okay. Karato is the Greek word that, from which we derive the word cornea. And uh, prosthesis means, you know, to add on or uh, an addition. So this, this uh, procedure was actually known sort of uh, colloquially as bone tooth surgery. Um, the doctors came to Ms. Thornton and they said, look, we have a possible cure for you, but here's what it's going to require. We have to remove your canine tooth, okay? We're going to remove your tooth. We're going to cut it down, 
We're going to drill a little hole in it. Okay? This is where it gets weird. We're going to take that tooth and we're going to implant it in your eye. And then we're going to insert a little prosthetic tube into the hole and that's going to open your cornea and light will be able to come in and you will be able to see. And she said, you want to put a tooth in my eye. Uh, this gives a whole new meaning uh, to the phrase eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. <laughs> Drum roll. Thank you. I've been waiting so long to say that. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate your generosity. Um, so, so they said, look, we want to put this bone in your tooth, this, this tooth in your eye. Uh, and she said, if I can see my grandkids at the end of this, you can put the canine bone in my eye. And so in uh, September of 2009, they performed this very complex surgery. Uh, just a few hours after the surgery, Miss Thornton was able to see and recognize faces. And within a few weeks, she was able to read stuff as small as a fine newsprint. Uh, and her vision continued to become restored until it was fully restored. And she was able to see her grandkids again and have the life that she had lost. Um, it's an incredible story. Uh, and it sort of gives a bit of a, a, just a backdrop for the story that we're going to talk about today. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. If you have your Bibles open and share with you, normally we have it on, on the screen, but uh, you'll have to trust me, this is what it says if you don't have your Bible. I'm not making it up. Uh, it says, at verse 46 says, they came to Jericho. Jesus and his, and his followers came to Jericho. And then as they were leaving Jericho, uh, Jesus with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. Um, some of you would remember Jericho from, uh, from the Old Testament stories about Jericho. This is actually a, uh, a Jericho that had been rebuilt about probably about two miles southeast of the old Jericho. Jericho was a small relatively small town that was about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. And last week we were talking about Jesus was now on his march to Jerusalem. He is marching to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin are, where the Pharisees are, where the holiest of holies is. He's on his way to clear the temple. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And this is going to be the final hurrah. This is what's going to bring his end. And he kept predicting all the way down. He kept saying, look, we're going to Jerusalem to die. And so on their way down, uh, they stopped in Jericho. Now, this was during the time of Passover. Okay, so this is Passover season. So there were literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of throngs of people coming from all over Galilee and Judea and walking and riding in carts and, in, uh, and, and mules and everything coming down to Jerusalem. All right. So this little town, Jericho, would be swollen with people at this time, just massive amounts of people. The, the, uh, you know, the restaurants were happy. The, uh, the uh, hotels were happy. We don't really have this since we have air travel, but the, the, the only thing I could think of that would sort of roughly approximate it um, would be the, uh, the motorcycle ride to Laughlin, you know, that, that where all the guys, you know, thousands of people dis descend on one town, and then all the little towns on the way, you know, they sell a lot of uh, sodas and food and hotels. And Jericho was one of these places. This was like Christmas for Bartimaeus because there are tens of thousands of people walking by. And he's saying, you know, he's, he's begging for alms. Um, importantly, this Passover that everyone was about to celebrate is a huge celebration 
of the Israelites' freedom, liberation from tyranny, liberation from oppression. Uh, They're about to go down and celebrate when they had been freed from um, Egypt. And what is ironic is that even as they're on their way down there to celebrate, they are being overseen by Roman guards. Uh, they are uh, they are an occupied land. They are oppressed. They have um, they have uh, not necessarily a tyrant, but they have an, a sort of an oppressive regime that looks over them. Um, so they're going to celebrate their freedom, but they're doing it in the context of being completely um, uh, sort of oppressed by this outside force. Remember also, I'm just giving some background context, this was the height of Jesus' popularity. There were literally thousands of people who had heard of Jesus and who knew about Jesus and people thronged to him. And as Jesus and his followers, the, the, the scripture says it was a large crowd, other, other passages say it was a huge multitude. As they're leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus starts asking, who is this? And someone says, it's Jesus. Um, the name Bartimaeus... Uh, is just it just means son of Timaeus. The word bar in Hebrew is means son. So when a person has a bar mitzvah, that means they're son of the covenant. Or or Simon bar Jonah means Simon son of Jonah. And and uh, Mark makes a point to translate it. He's writing this passage to Gentiles. So when he has a, a Hebrew word in there, he likes to translate it for for us. Um, so he says bar Timaeus. Son of Timaeus. Now, there are some scholars that look at the word Timaeus and they say what this really means is Timaeus in Aramaic means poverty. So, Bartimaeus is saying, you know, calling him Bartimaeus means he is the son of poverty, which is interesting, um, if, and you'll see why in just a minute. Because in verse 47, he says, when, when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, saying, Son of David. Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Many people warned him to keep quiet, but he cried out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. He keeps calling Jesus son of David, and the people keep trying to hush him up. Um, you know, when I was, I was in New York one time, I don't think I've told you this before, but when I was in New York one time, um, I was walking down the street, and there was a guy who probably saw me from about 20 yards off, okay? And he comes walking up to me, and he's got this look on his face like he recognizes me. And he's walking up to me, and he's going, Senator, 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 to me, okay? And I'm looking around, and no, he's talking to me. And he goes, Senator, Senator, and he walks right up to me, and he goes, Senator, and he takes my hand, and and I shake it, and he goes, care to pass a bill? That's... He's trying to, you know, and I listened, I heard that and I had the same reaction to you. I went, huh? And I went, oh man, that was so good. I've got to reach for my wallet on that one. He, he was a homeless man, but he had this, he had this thing down. He had his, his deal down. Senator, do you care to pass a bill? So I gave him, I think I gave him a one But anyway, um, uh, Bartimaeus is on the side of the road and he's crying out and he's asking for alms but when he hears that Jesus comes by he starts saying Jesus son of David now there's a this is a packed and loaded uh, statement and here's why because first of all son of David everybody in that context knew what that meant son of David 
was the designation for the Messiah, the Christ. So when he started saying son of David, this is the first time in the book of Mark that the identity of Jesus is proclaimed publicly. Back in chapter 8, Peter privately, when Jesus said, do you know who I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus, throughout the book of Mark, has been saying, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell anyone what I'm doing. In, in chapter 10, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, a beggar, starts proclaiming the identity of Christ to anyone within earshot. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The people tried to warn him to be quiet. Why? One, maybe he was annoying, okay? But two, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for Bartimaeus, when there are Roman soldiers around, to be saying, you're the Christ. You are the son of David. David was the king. You're going to be the new king. Herod is out. Caesar is out. Pilate is out. You're taking over. That's how the, the, the locals and the, and the Israelites at that time understood that that's what the Messiah would do. They believed the Messiah would come in with a political and military force and sweep out the Romans uh, and take over uh, and build a kingdom right there. So people are hushing and shushing him saying, look, man, be quiet. You can't make this proclamation out loud in front of thousands of people. Um, but what this uh, blind man knew, if he was raised in a good Jewish home, uh, he knew Isaiah 35, and he probably knew it by heart. Because Isaiah 35 says, Behold your God. This was a messianic text. Behold your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. This man knew that when Messiah comes, the blind eyes will be opened. And this blind man sitting at the side of the road says, Look, if the Messiah is walking by, I'm going and I'm going to get some of that. I'm going to come and get my eyes opened when Messiah is here. Uh, this man, and the, the other irony here is that Jesus had been with his disciples for three, almost going on three years at this point. And over and over and over again, the disciples who could see clearly, who heard clearly, who saw amazing miracles, who witnessed Jesus' teaching, who had one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus, over and over kept missing out on who he was, kept missing his identity, kept misunderstanding who he was. In fact, if you remember at that point when they were in the boat back, I think in six or seven, Jesus just cut loose on him. And he's like, you don't you have eyes to see? Don't you have ears to hear? Don't you know who I am? And here's this blind man who's never seen a miracle, who's never, never seen Jesus do anything. And but he knows he knows immediately. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David. And so the scripture says that he cried out all the louder. Um, there is a distinction when somebody cries out and then when somebody really cries out. So like on Saturday morning when Rebecca and I are lying in bed and we hear a cry in the other room, Rebecca will say, is that a hurt cry? Because if it's a hurt cry, we got to go get it. But if it's just somebody, if it's just Jameson or Lincoln and they're just squalling, then we might <clears throat> let it pass. Um, <clears throat> 
Um, and this man, this, this man is crying out. He is crying out the louder. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, <clears throat> call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. The man threw off his coat, jumped up, some passages say, or some translations say, sprang up, and came to Jesus. I love how <clears throat> the man threw off his coat before he even, can I have a little bit of that water? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, thank you. Got a little excited there. So the man, before Jesus does anything, the man expects and anticipates that things are about to change, that his life is about to change. This is the beggar's coat that he has been wearing and sitting by the side of the road for who knows how many years. Before anything happens, he throws that coat off, springs to his feet, and comes to Jesus. Sometimes in our own lives, when, when we feel God calling us, when we hear Jesus calling us or drawing our hearts, we need to throw off some of these old things that hold us back. We need to throw off old habits, old feelings, old hurts, old pains, old bitterness. Um, when Jesus is calling us and be ready to start anew and be ready to start fresh. <clears throat> and that's what Bartimaeus does here throws off his coat, springs forward, runs to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him in verse 51. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the man told him, I want to see. I want to see. This is only the second time in the scriptures that we hear, hear someone call Jesus Rabboni. Um, there are sort of three terms in that wrapped up in that term. Uh, we've all heard Jesus called rabbi, um, but there were three sort of variations of it. Rab uh, was sort of the, uh, it had to do with how great they were, how much training they were. They were like doctors of divinity. So the reb was a doctor of divinity. A rabbi was a greater, more learned doctor. And a rabboni in ca- carried with it this implication of a personal master teacher. Um, and this man, it says, Rabboni, he, he, he addresses Jesus with the highest level of deference and honor and respect um, that he could and, and, and basically said, you are my beloved master uh, in this one, in this one uh, phrase. And then when Jesus said, remember when Jesus last week asked uh, James and John, what do you want from me? And they said, we want to be on your li- left and right hand. We want popularity. We want fame. We want power. Um, in this case, the, all the man says is, I want to see. I want to see. That should be, on a spiritual level, our prayer too. God, help us to understand you better. Help us to understand ourselves better. Help us to understand one another better. We want to see. We want spiritual insight. We want elucidation. We want clarity in our lives. In, in, in verse 52, Jesus says, Go your way. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, the man could see and began to follow him on the road. I like how Jesus says, Go your way. And the man says, no, I'm going to go ahead and follow you. You know, he said, you're healed. You can go do whatever you want. And the man says, I'm following you. This is the first uh, instance in the book of Mark where someone who was healed was allowed to follow Jesus. Um, and that's because he's marching towards the end. Before, Jesus was trying to, to some extent, keep his identity unknown or sort of, you know, quiet. Uh, but now as he's marching towards Jericho, towards the end, he's allowing this guy to follow him. 
Jesus loved this man's faith. Um, I just want to give you quickly four attributes of this man's faith that I think uh, you'll appreciate. One is that it was a sort of childlike faith. He sprung to his feet. He threw off his robe. He anticipated and expected that Jesus would heal him, and that's what happened. And Jesus appreciated and loved that. It was a persistent faith. When the crowds were saying, be quiet, shut up, he wouldn't stop. He kept pushing forward. He wasn't uh, even worried about his own safety. So it was also a courageous faith. It was a faith that he was willing to exercise um, despite the potential harm that could befall him. Uh, knowing that calling someone the son of David uh, would have been tantamount to, to saying that this was a political revolutionary that you're going to follow, um, he, it didn't frighten him, and he was willing to say that. And it was an act of faith. Uh, based on his faith, he threw off his coat and immediately charged after Jesus. Uh, the first thing he saw when Jesus healed him was the face of Jesus. And I love that moment because this man hasn't seen, we don't know in how many years. We don't, it doesn't seem like he was blind from birth because it, it, it says that he, uh, his sight was renewed. So we think that he may have had sight at some point prior to this. But the first time he opened his eyes after all of these years, the first thing he saw was the face of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, right now we see through a glass dimly. We see darkly through a glass but then we shall see him face to face. So when we pass from this life to the next, we will look upon the face of our Savior, and we will see him clearly, and we will see him face to face. Um, so as we emerge from the chaos and the clutter and the confusion of this world into a greater spiritual clarity, we will be able to see him face to face. Helen Keller says, Faith is the strength by which a shattered world shall emerge into the light. And I love that. Um, there are a couple uh, attributes that I just want to quickly go through with you. Some attributes of spiritual blindness and attributes of spiritual sight. And so if you're taking notes, uh, you can take this down. Uh, this man, though blind, had a spiritual insight that escaped all of the rest of the people around him. Um, many of them were spiritually blind to some extent. And although this guy was physically blind, he had spiritual sight. Um, here are some of the attributes of spiritual blindness. When we're spiritually blind, we have a flawed sense of our own identity. We don't really know who we are when we're spiritually blind. Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. Sometimes, sometimes we think too lowly of ourselves. Um, we have a lack of reverence for God. Spiritual blindness leads to a lack of reverence for God. And I don't mean that we have to be austere or pious because we are followers of Christ. Um, but when we, when we don't have spiritual insight, sometimes we are calloused towards the things of God. We're dismissive and, and uh, critical. Um, spiritual blindness leads to moral caprice, which means uh, we are, our morality is driven not by principle but by desire. Okay? Why do you do this? Because I want to. Not based on any principle, not based on any clear, comprehensible you know, reason, but we do it because we want to. Um, why? And so moral caprice, we, we act on our impulse when we're spiritually blind. Self-absorption, spiritual blindness leads to self-absorption. Uh, my <clears throat> One of my good family friends used to always say, you know, we, we'll, be, we'll be talking a little bit, and, he, and he's telling me what's going on in his life. And then he'll say, hey, you know what? Enough about me. Let's talk about you. 
what do you think about me? Uh, so, uh, self-absorption is uh, one of the attributes of, of spiritual blindness. Uh, I'm not going to tell. I didn't give his name, so. Um, um, a recalcitrant heart, a stubborn heart. This is, this is spiritual blindness. This is one of the attributes of spiritual blindness. When you dig in your heels, you might be wrong, but you're not going to change. You know, I love the Bible calls the Israelites, you know, over and over, and us, stiff-necked people, where we go, mm, you know what, I might be wrong, but I'm just going to push against that. I'm not going to accept. Um, Lincoln, my littlest one, has now gotten to this point where he wants to try out. No. He wants to try out. Mm-mm, not going to do that. Um, and so, he ha- but his heart hasn't become stubborn yet. So he'll, he'll, he'll say, I'll say, Lincoln, come here. I'm going to take, we're going to go outside. And he'll go, no. And then I'll go, I'll make, I'll make my, like my mean face. And I'll go, Lincoln, now that's not nice. And he'll go, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so far that's working. When I preach on this in three months, We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A stubborn heart. Um, Spiritual blindness leads to cowardice. If we don't have spiritual, a spiritual understanding about who we are in God and about God's relationship with us, um, we can be lost in anxiety and fear about things in the world over which we have no control. And we don't know who has control. Um, you know, when we, when we understand who God is, we, we appreciate and understand that he is sovereign and that he reigns and he's in control and that gives us strength and courage. But when we don't have that insight, uh, it can lead to a lot of fear and confusion. Uh, shallow pleasure. Um, spiritual blindness leads to an emphasis on shallow pleasure rather than deep abiding joy. Um, and the pleasures of this world, for those of us who, uh, you know, have at least some spiritual insight, we know that these pleasures are transient. They come, they go, and they're gone. And then you're either left with looking for the next one um, or you got to get to something deeper, okay? Um, and then finally, ingratitude. Spiritual blindness leads to ingratitude. Um, ingratitude is sort of this lingering discontentment with everything. Like things just aren't good no matter what. You know, and it's a it's an inability to see yourself in the context or in relation to other people, and you just sort of go about going, eh, you know, un- ungrateful for what you have in life. Um, so those are some of the attributes of spiritual blindness. But I want to go through some of the attributes of spiritual sight, spiritual sight or spiritual insight. When you have a deeper sense of spiritual sight or spiritual insight. You have, number one, a deep self-awareness. This is a, one of the great, uh, fundamental, brilliant pieces about the Christian faith is that it describes us so accurately. Um, we know, those of you who have uh, at some point repented and given your life to God, had to come to grips with the conclusion that you were a deeply flawed, broken person. Has anyone ever had to come to grips with that? I mean, you know, coming to that conclusion, arriving at that conclusion is absolutely a massive milestone because then once you've done that, then you can reach out to something greater than you. You can reach out to someone bigger than you and ask for help. 
But if you can't arrive at that conclusion about who you are, you can't reach out to God. And Jesus, throughout the scriptures, loves those people who are able to say, yeah, I need some help. Yeah, I'm broken. I'm messed up, and I need some help. And he can't help the ones who don't need help. He doesn't force himself. Um, So we have this deep self-awareness. I love that Bartimaeus had this. Bartimaeus, the son of poverty, is saying, son of David, have mercy upon me. I need you. I can't have what I want without you. Number two, uh, we have a profound awe of God. Attribute of spiritual sight, number two, a profound awe of God. I remember when I was a kid, we would go out to Caldwell, Idaho, where my cousins lived, and they, they had this porch, this back porch, and we would lie down on this porch and look up, and there were no lights around. You know, there were no cities around. And you could see millions of stars, millions and millions of stars and planets and even satellites you could see um and airplanes uh and fireflies no and you know it was amazing because you would just start to get a grasp of like wow we are tiny in the context of this massively great big universe Uh, and when we have spiritual sight we start to develop a true understanding of the awesome nature of our god Number three, we develop a heightened moral sensitivity. A heightened moral sensitivity. When I first became a Christian, one of the very first things that happened to me is that I became totally embarrassed and mortified about some of the things that I had done, said, and thought. I mean, like red-faced. You start going, oh, man, I did that? And that seemed okay at the time? And, that, and I thought that was normal? You know, when you, when you really uh, give your heart to God and start developing some sense of spiritual insight, the things that you've done in the past, the things that you've thought, man, they just, you start to see them for what they are. Um, and as we develop spiritually, I think we become even more highly attuned to that, uh, what's right and what's wrong. Number four, spiritual insight, we, we develop a longing to serve. We develop a longing to serve when we, when we gain spiritual insight. Jesus said, let the greatest among you be the servant of all. And he said, I came, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We talked about that last week. Jesus said, I have not come to pay the ransom. I've come to be the ransom. And in that word, that word lucron, that word ransom, that means that which must be paid to free a slave, that which must be paid to free a prisoner. And Jesus said, I didn't come to pay the ransom. I came to be the ransom. I'm going to step into prison in your place so that you can be free. I'm going to become enslaved so that you can be liberated. If you get a hold of that truth and get an understanding of who Jesus is and what he really came to do for you personally, it will radically transform your life. I mean, amazingly transform your life when you realize that he loves you so much that he's going to step into the bondage and take on the bondage on the cross that you were carrying. And he's going to take it. And you're going to be free. Mm. Um, A repentant heart is, is what you develop when you gain spiritual insight. A repentant heart. A heart that is able to say, I'm sorry. Okay? I'm really sorry. Husbands, we need, we need this. We need this. Spiritual insight number five, 
We need this, guys. We need to be able to say, I'm sorry. And the women of the church said, amen. <laughs> sorry, guys, but it's true. Um, yeah, you know, one of the, one of the best things that, that Rebecca and I sort of learned, I don't remember even who taught us, but it was that ability when, you know, we got into a fight, which we never do anymore. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but that, will, that willingness and that ability to say, hey, look, I'm sorry. You know, e- even if I was technically right. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No. Um, but, but sorry for, you know, maybe the presentation of what you said or maybe the attitude with which you said it. Even though technically what you might have said was accurate or it may have been inaccurate, but you need to be able to apologize. And spiritual insight and spiritual um, vision allows us allows our heart to become repentant and we and we don't we don't get hung up on having to be right all the time we can go ahead and say hey look i'm sorry our hearts soften and we develop a repentant heart number six an attribute of spiritual development spiritual sight is unusual courage unusual courage when we reconcile our hearts with god when we become aligned with God and we place God as our master and we follow God, then we don't have to fear anybody else. That's the beauty of it. When God is your master, there's nothing to fear. And there's no one to fear. So aligning yourself with God and developing spiritual insight can bring you an unusual, uncanny, uncharacteristic, extraordinary courage in life. You can walk through life with a sense of knowing that you are aligned with the one who created the world and that he loves you and that he wants what's best for you. I love that. Number seven, abiding joy. Abiding joy. Isaiah 35.10 says, and the ransomed of the Lord, the ransomed of the Lord, the ones who have been ransomed will return They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. When we develop spiritual insight, we become infused with an abiding joy. And that doesn't mean we're going to be happy-go-lucky all the time. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go right. But that means that even when... You know, the computer goes down <laughs> and the, and the uh, screen goes down. You know, when things aren't going right, there's still an abiding joy. It's still like, you know what? It's all right. We're going to get through this. We've got an abiding joy that is deeper than our circumstances and our peripheral emotions. Having spiritual insight brings you an abiding joy. You will, Isaiah 55, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. I love this. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. The trees of the field will clap their hands and the mountains will burst forth in joy before you. Do you know when you have spiritual, deep spiritual insight and those, those tree limbs are just, you know, shaking back and forth, you're like, those trees are clapping Those trees in the field are clapping because they know who their creator is. 
Um, and number eight, and this is my last one, and I'm not going to I'm going to close in just a minute. But number eight is extraordinary gratitude. Spiritual insight leads to extraordinary gratitude. When I first uh, became a Christian, I just remember my my overwhelming emotion was thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just that, wow, you brought me out. You saved me. You pulled me out of the miry clay, as the passage says. And that gratitude of knowing God Thank you for pulling me out. And that's something that we need to, you know, keep close in our heart and keep on our lips. First um, Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Psalm 104, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Colossians 2, 6, 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. This is what we're called to do. Overflow with gratitude for Christ, for God in our life. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I walked back to today right before service, the prayer team is meeting in the uh, elementary room right before service. Walk back there and just this group of people, and they, 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 they couldn't see me come in because they were praying, and they were just saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. I mean, it was just beautiful, so moving. Thank you, Lord. Um, and I'm going to close with this. And I've told this story before, and I, and I won't go into detail, but, you know, my conversion and everybody's conversion is different. But when I really, you know, became a Christian, there were a few, there were several steps to it. I didn't receive like this wham, you know, lightning bolt from heaven that transformed my life. And suddenly I was, you know, Mr. Upright. But, um, and I'm still not Mr. Upright, in case you were wondering. Um, but there was an experience that I had that I'll always go back to. It was in the garden outside of my father's hospice. And there was this, just this, you know, for years I had been alone. For years I had been alienated from God. Didn't want anything to do with God. Not a believer. um, Not a Christian. Not pretending to be a Christian. Would tell you defiantly and openly, I want nothing to do with God or the things of of God. Just didn't believe in it. Uh, And standing out there in this garden outside of my dad's hospice room when he was just days from passing away, had just an abiding sense, a deep, palpable sense that I was not alone in that very same way that uh, if you're in a room and you feel something you look around there's somebody in there it was that feeling a sense of not being alone and in my heart my mind I said where have you been and what I felt in my heart and you know not not audibly but what I heard in my heart was I have been here all the time All the time. When you thought you were alone, you were not alone. When you thought you were in danger, you were not in danger. When you thought you were in trouble, you were not in trouble. I was there all the time. And let me tell you, that presence has never left me from that day. Never left me. Now, on that day, I wouldn't have been able to say, this is the Holy Spirit. This is God in my life. I wasn't able to say that. I didn't have the theological words for it, and I hadn't become a believer. But something cracked open. A little seam in in my heart broke open and allowed me to feel at least to some extent the presence of God in my life. Um, 
and I think for me, that's when I started to see the things that I that were right in front of me that I didn't know were there. Uh, perhaps for you, it's been a long time since you have been aware of God's love in your life and and His presence in your life, and perhaps you've never even experienced uh, the nearness of God. Perhaps, like many of us, you're skeptical and uncertain about who God is and whether he has any interest in you, let me just encourage you today. And even if you're a believer, even if you're a believer, let me encourage you today. Spend a moment this afternoon on this beautiful Mother's Day. Spend a moment reaching out in your heart to God. Spend a moment saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Spend a moment reaching out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. A man of poverty, a man of uncleanness, have mercy upon me. It can be that simple. See what happens as you begin to walk behind this man, the Christ, the Messiah. See what miracles begin to unfold in your own life. When you hear him calling you, when you feel that tug on your own heart to draw closer to God, throw off those things that hold you from him and pursue him. Pursue him with faith and with hope and a burning desire to see, to really, really see. What you'll experience, I assure you, will be greater than anything that you're holding on to. Restoration of your soul. Reconciliation with the God of the universe. And maybe for the first time ever, you'll begin to see things as they truly are. And you, like millions and millions of others around the world will be able to mean it when you sing the words amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see amen let's pray heavenly father thank you 